the ultimate job of the poet laureate is to get people reading poetry again right. and, and to get people reinvested in poetry and to help people see that contemporary poetry is speaking their truths too. Welcome to the 15th episode of On the Grid, a podcast dedicated to the Valley of the Sun. This podcast is a place where you can come to meet the creators and newsmakers taking this metropolis to the next level. A place where you can learn what's really happening in Phoenix. My name's Philip Haldeman, and I will be your host. There's a poet in the house of this episode of On the Grid. What's more, she's a poet laureate, our poet, the poet laureate of our fair city. Rosemarie Dombrowski is Phoenix's first poet laureate. She comes to us via the state of Missouri, and she's made a name for herself here, weaving words and teaching words and helping foster a culture of spoken word, particularly in the downtown arts community and on the ASU campus. And now she's taking it to a bigger stage. Rosemary, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So you were announced Phoenix Poet Laureate in January? December, they announced December, it. Okay. But the term officially started on January 1st. Okay, so how does that feel? You know, it didn't feel real yet in December when I got the email. And I think the ceremony, which was somewhere at the end of the semester, maybe second or third week of December, was very surreal. It was beyond my wildest expectations. Because it was dignitaries. I was going to say, exactly. It felt like there were a lot of dignitaries there whose names I was never going to remember. And I just wanted to make sure that my hair looked good and that I sounded good. Those were my two main objectives. Don't stumble over your words and make sure your hair looks good in the photos. Um, (laughs) And once I saw the photos, it, it started to feel a little bit more real, but it just never, for a poet, I think ever settles in quite... Right. You're a poet. I'm always crouched over my desk in my room in pajamas or a sundress or something. You mean because there should be less superficiality, less pomp and circumstance, yes. that sort of thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. I'm I'm always in the community doing some kind of community-oriented work, running a reading series, uh, running a small zine press, working with my students. Uh, and you could just let everyone know, you, you are a professor at ASU. I am, on okay. the downtown campus. Gotcha. And you teach... Um, Poetry or just English literature or just a bunch I of teach things? I teach literature because okay. that's what my PhD is in, but I also teach the creative writing poetry workshops. I teach some special topics writing classes, and I also run the Journal of Student and Community Writing on the downtown campus. So I teach an editing internship as well. Cool. So going back to uh, Poet Laureate, what are, you, what are your duties, so to speak? Well, the duties are not very many, at least not the ones that are outlined, because I'm the inaugural poet Right, laureate, so you're kind of so. like the, uh, the you're, <laughs> right. you're, you're like the one to be judged. I think it's the make level. it up as you go, poet right, laureate. Right, yeah. uh, That's what we're I, all doing anyway, you know? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. That is me every day. Uh, they told me that I was supposed to give four public readings a year. I don't think that that means that I have to read solo four times in one year. I'm don't do that very often. I'm not really comfortable with it. I just launched my book, though, on April 1st. So I am counting that as number one. Oh, okay. Because I did read by myself Excellent. that day. Yeah. And, and what was probably, the name of the book? It's called The Philosophy of Unclean Things. Okay. I am a germaphobe. Um, it's sort of recovering, but it's not just about that. <laughs> Uh, it has it has a lot of dead bird imagery in it. It has a lot of it has a lot of uh, rotting imagery, right, 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 things right. that are rotting. Uh, there's some travel. There's some discombobulation. There's some sort of strange, you know, kind of cultural discord and and melange and marriage. I think it's a really interesting collection. And now, is that a phase for you, or is this something you've gone through for a while? I don't think it's a phase. It represents a 
a two-year period of my writing. Okay. So it was probably a writerly phase. Gotcha. Uh, the birds still come up in the poems. Everybody teases me about them. They're still there. I always put birds in poems. It's like a Portlandia episode. Okay, my life yeah. is sort of awesome. like a Portlandia episode. So I can't deny. It, right? yeah. Exactly. I can't deny the fact that I love birds and I will spray paint them on things uh-huh. and I will find jewelry that has birds and I have too many bird dresses. And so that just kind of goes with the ethos of philosophy. Right. And I'm not writing poems in that vein anymore. I'm not focusing on the germophobia. I'm not focusing on, you know, the cultural discombobulation. I don't write about superstitions anymore. Hmm. Uh, but the birds still creep in. Interesting. Yeah, they creep in. Like any good muse. Well, should, yeah. Right? I mean, I think they are my muses. Totally. So that was one of your, you're counting that as one of your uh, public That was one of my r- public readings. readings. I might yeah. do another one in the Phoenix Art Museum over the summer, but that would be in collaboration with a couple of other artists. I doubt that I'm going to read solo again unless it's much later in the year. I will so probably then it would do... be with other poets, I Yes, imagine. I will hopefully do two collaborative readings and okay. then maybe just one more by myself. Okay. And I imagine there's um, part of the duties is kind of like outreach education and that sort of stuff, yes, schools and whatnot. Absolutely. I was at South Mountain Community College last Monday. Great experience. Loved it. And then I was at an elementary school in Scottsdale on Wednesday with third graders, okay. which was also a great experience. So I pretty much just wait for those requests to roll in. Gotcha. And when they do, I say yes, yes, okay. yes, yes, right. yes, yes, because I love being in the classroom. Cool. Nothing I love more. How long have you been teaching for? Oh my gosh. 1998. Okay. The year that I started grad school. Okay. Never left. Nice. Yeah. One of those, huh? One of those. One of those diehards. Now, I love the classroom. There's no place where I feel more comfortable. It's probably why I'm not really a solo reader. I, I like now, the interactive that, space of the Explain classroom. that a little bit to a t- solo reader. Like, I, I mean, I think I know what you mean, but like solo reader as opposed to like um, like a show full of, that features a bunch of artists. Like- yes, that's what I prefer. Okay. Usually if we launch an anthology or a special project, we will invite all of the participants to read. So everybody gets their five minutes. Everybody gets their seven minutes. I love being a part of shows like that. I love putting together shows like that. I've been hosting and organizing shows like that for over a decade. You in get the that for sure, yeah. And that is my forte, I think. I've been at the helm of a couple of different publications. I've been at the helm of a couple of different organizations. So I like to think of myself as the organizer and not necessarily the solo performer. Right. Yeah. Because a solo performer that you're talking about is kind of like maybe that would like read for like a half hour, hour, like, like. Yeah, like a half an hour. I mean. Certainly, the mid-level poets will try to cut themselves off around 20, 25 minutes. The higher-level poets could read for as long as 45. Right. It's painful for most people. You, yeah, I was going to say, do you feel like the audience is, is is not quite there for that as opposed to like having a bunch of different, a variety of different poets on? Well, again, I like reading for an audience that is more student and then is more community okay, than yeah. poet. Now, if you read for an audience filled with poets, I guess they can hang on sure. for 45 minutes Absolutely, because yes. that's their jam. Right. But if you're reading for students of any age, they are not hanging on for 45 True. minutes, even if they think you're awesome. It's right. not going to happen. So I think I take that classroom approach gotcha. out into the community with me. Yes. And that seems pretty smart. I mean, just... just Attention spans and whatnot, you know, we, exactly. you know, like it's hard for anybody to, to listen or even watch something for more than five minutes sometimes, you know? Right. And I mean, the ultimate job of the Poet Laureate is to mm-hmm. get people reading poetry again. Right, right. And, and to get people reinvested in poetry and to help people see that contemporary poetry is speaking their truths too. And it's voicing their concerns, not 19th century, not 20th century, contemporary poetry. So the last thing I think as poets we want to do, and especially me as Poet Laureate, is go out there and read for 45 minutes mm-hmm. because I think that 
does not draw people into poetry. It pushes them away from poetry yet again, Good which point. is what I'm trying to not do. Do you think that poetry, I mean, where are we in the sense of poetry? Like, are people interested in poetry these days? Were they interested 20 years ago, 50 years ago? Like, where are we in terms of, like, the audience for poetry? Did you see that New York Times article? No. Friday? I'm just um, channeling it. No, I don't God. know. Is well, that they were, the, they, that they were talking about? Yeah, they were yeah. talking about the relevance of poetry in the political climate. Okay. And not only how nice, important yeah. poetry right. is, but how its audience is growing spontaneously. Is. Yes. And you think it's because of the political climate? They took the a Langston Hughes poem and compared the number of hits on it last year to the number of really? hits this year already. And it's already something like three times more this year already. Hmm. And I think they might have used a Walt Whitman poem and an Emily Dickinson poem. So people are going back to the 19th century. But the great thing about a website like Poets.org or Academy of American Poets is that uh, they are showcasing a breadth of poetic styles. Right. And so you're not just there as a student researching 19th century poetry. You're going to stumble upon the very contemporary stuff as well, because that's probably what's going to be on the homepage. And you're going to see links to contemporary poets on the homepage as well. So I always encourage my audiences to sign up for A Poem a Day through poets.org or the Academy of American Poetry. Because again, you don't have to read it. it comes in your inbox, but you know you're going to be somewhere at some point during the week and think, I wish I had something to read. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see one of those that you didn't delete in your inbox. Right. And you're going to read it, and there's going to be something there that speaks to you. Right. Maybe not every day, but right. at some point, there's definitely going to be something that probably speaks to you. I don't even open mine every day. Right. Yeah. I don't open them every day. Honestly, right. sometimes I just delete. Other times, I'll hang on to them for a week and then maybe click on them all quickly at the end of the week. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that there's any guilt involved in deleting a poem that shows up in your inbox. Just knowing that they're there and that they're waiting for you and that they're present right. in our lives and in our artistic communities and in our society is a cool thing, I think. Totally, yeah. The nice thing is, is like, it, it can be long or it can be short. Like, you can come back to it mm -hmm. you know like Absolutely. i don't know I, I wonder about people's what what people out there think about poetry you mm -hmm. know what i mean like um do you feel like how long is your term for for poet laureate it's two years, okay. but I think it's renewable for another two. Okay. In some cities, it's forever until you really? resign. Wow. Yeah. But not all cities have laureates. Right. And more cities now have youth yeah. laureates than they have older laureates, okay. which is interesting. Yeah. So it's like high school students and young college students are selected as youth laureates, okay. and then those cities don't have old people laureates. Right. I'm an old person laureate. <laughs> um, I, mean, I I almost feel like four years is a lot more pressure, but I don't feel like I'm going to get everything done in two years. And the platform is so important to me because I've been in the community in the trenches for 10 plus years already. And to have this platform, which is like a springboard to do bigger things and more inclusive things and more community oriented and community centric okay, speaking projects. Of what would be something like that that you would be interested in doing? You know, Well, I am definitely going to start my project called the Community Poetry Gardens. ASAP. I'm putting a call out to a couple of high schools. That's how I'm going to get the ball rolling on this. And what I am looking for is a group of high school students who are interested in expressing themselves, uh, their communal interests, their cultural interests, their identities, their proclivities in 20-ish, 15 words or less. And what we're going to do is we're going to help that, huh? them. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to help them craft micro poems because, again, these are going to be for public consumption. Eventually, all these micro poems will be installed on a wall 
by artists who will help the students install their poems and that's what creates the poetry garden no we're gonna pick a wall in the city we're gonna just pick walls in the city that businesses are willing and private owners are willing to donate to us so that's that's the tricky part but i feel like the street artists get it all the time the muralists are able to find those walls all the time yeah i gotta be able to find one for the kids i want their poetry to be showcased for the city to see because i want them to know that we're listening Cool. And that we're seeing what their concerns are. So that is the project that I already okay. got the fellowship for. Ah, gotcha. And this is so something. So that's happening. This is some. Okay. okay. It's, it's definitely something that, that's moving forward with, obviously. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I want to do four of those walls minimum. So, okay. <laughs> so no. there's that. I mean, I would love to do a dozen. I don't know if anybody's going to let me stay that long. I feel like you'd be surprised, you know? I mean, look at all the murals that are out there. You I know. know? Like, right? seriously. Uh, what sort of process did you have to go through to become the Phoenix? Poet lady. What, the Phoenix poet lady. <laughs> Thank you. Well, they didn't give me a laurel crown, which no. I was a little bit upset about. Um, you might get one yet. I might know. still. I know. I told them a tiara would have been fine too, but neither <laughs> neither has happened. I had to write a letter of interest slash intent, which was probably the most difficult part of the process because I wanted my passion and my enthusiasm to be conveyed earnestly. And I feel like sometimes if you don't know someone personally, that passion and enthusiasm can seem a little bit over the top on the page. But if you see me talking, like if you see me talking, my hands are gesticulating wildly. And I think you can see it in my eyes and my face when I try to transfer that onto the page. Right. I just, I just wanted to make sure that they didn't think that I was, you know, blowing smoke. I I mean, poetry is my life and I needed them to believe that. And so, I did spend a lot of time and thought crafting that letter. I also needed two letters of recommendation. One of those recommenders had to essentially be my nominator, but then also had to write a full letter. And then someone else had to just write another letter of recommendation. I had to submit a vita, a curriculum vita that highlighted my communal and creative experience. And I also had to submit publications. So it could have been disparate publications, you know, links to journals, photocopied pages from journals, but I already had a book out at the time. So I just sent them a copy of my book. And you've kind of been known in the community as a poet for a while now. So you had all those things kind of accessible. Yes. It sounds like. Ready to go. Because I have been working to grow the poetry community and the literary arts community and expand the offerings at the ASU downtown campus and embed the students more in that process. So yes, I had a lot of it ready to go. Was there a point where you're like, okay, I'm a poet now? You know what I mean? Like, because. Yeah, that's so weird. Yeah. Because, I mean, what kind of validation do you really receive as a poet? Right. Honestly, it might have <laughs> been the poet laureateship, which well, is what makes it so surreal. Right, right. Because, I mean, I call myself sort of a third tier poet. I'm, I'm not, you know, at the national level of Juan Felipe Herrera, who's the nation's poet laureate right now. And I'm not at the level of Alberto Rios, who is the state's poet laureate. I mean, these men are widely anthologized. They have numerous publications under their belt. So at best, I'm a third tier poet. You know, you've got sort of the right. Herreras and the Rioses and then the Mies, right. maybe third tier. And I feel like on the third tier, you know, if if your manuscript gets picked up once every three years, you're over the moon. Mm-hmm. Like, that's great for a third tier poet. You sell 100 copies, you're over the moon. That's great for a third tier poet. So something like the Poet Laureateship, I didn't realize was really going to solidify that identity as much as it has. Mm. You know, I feel like other people are validating me more as a poet and right. it's forcing me to maybe validate myself a little bit more as yeah, a poet. Yeah, because I imagine sometimes you, artists tend to be pretty hard on themselves, you know. Right. So sometimes that can that's a whole journey in and of itself it, it is. seems like, you know. I've just, you know, 
maybe not self-acceptance, but yeah. recognition of oneself for the artistic accomplishments that you've achieved, which are still very microcosmic as a poet. You know what I mean? I mean, most people who accomplish other things in the world would think, can't you hold all that shit that you've accomplished as a poet in the palm of your hand? Because really, I mean, it's poetry. <laughs> you know, I think that's how a lot of people feel. And so sometimes that gets reflected onto you. And I, as a poet laureate, I absolutely have to refract that. That that has to bounce off of me. I have to be out in the community selling the gospel of poetry every single day. And I take that so seriously. Mm. It's truth telling people. You know, if you want a voice, if you want a voice in the political process, if you want a voice in your community, if you want a voice in your school, this is a way to do it. This is a medium that is here for you to use in that way. And that's what contemporary poetry is doing. It's social justice poetry. It's activist poetry. It's ethnographic poetry. And so that's basically what I'm teaching now. I just shift all of my my focus in the classroom to what I know is relevant today. So that's the cool thing about being an educator, maybe more so than even being a poet, is that I always know what's being produced at any given moment. And I will assign that and shift the focus of a poetry writing unit to that so that my students are then on the cutting edge and they're producing the kind of work that poets should be producing. Like even if I lag behind as a poet because I'm sort of an old person poet, I don't want my students to be lagging behind as poets. They don't need to be writing like, you know, the poets from the 60s and 70s or the 80s and 90s right. that I studied. So how does that make it different or bad or negative? Because you made it sound like maybe it's negative being an old person poet. Like, like. Well, I mean, I was schooled by third wave feminists, right. I guess second wave feminists and third wave feminists. And now we're in the fourth wave and it's just hyper political and it's hyper inclusive. And Do you feel like when you get older, you get kind of disconnected to no fault of your own? Because sometimes I feel like that. Like I feel like- Like you used to listen to music and be know everything about music and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Now I feel like I'm out of the loop. No, I feel like most most normal people as they age feel that way. No, I but like I get to spend every day with 20-somethings. Yes. Yeah, so you can't- yes. So I am, yeah. I am definitely not out of the loop, which I love. But I think that they wouldn't be in the poetic loop if I wasn't there. So that's the loop that I'm. I feel so I have an obligation to stay. In. Right? They stay in the music loop and they educate me, and I stay in the poetry loop and I educate them. So yeah, we meet in the middle. I think it's a good partnership. We're a good team. And more than anything, I think of myself as a teacher. That's what I am. I'm a perpetual educator. I come from a family of educators. It's what I love. Can't imagine myself doing anything else. Well, when did you actually start? When did you start writing? In whatever well, form. Well, I mean, like, I was writing really were, bad poetry when I was young. Well, you have to do that, though, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, as an undergrad, I was writing embarrassing poetry, of yeah. course. And I was writing short stories and little vignettes when I was in junior high, when I used to go to this gifted program in the summer, and I took a creative writing class. Uh, I think I've always dabbled, but I was primarily a dancer when I was younger. Oh, so okay. that might explain. I kind of shifted art forms. And so by the time I got to college... I wouldn't say that I was a 50-50 split anymore. I was still studying dance in college, but I was probably more of a 75 poetry, 25 dance by the time I got to college. High school was about 50-50. Huh. Just because kind of naturally dancing is, or I wouldn't say it's uh, not uh, realistic, but like 
what was the reasoning for your... I love your question. I know, right? Because poetry just, is do, 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 do. so realistic. As right, I know, right? Exactly. Let me right. tell you, yeah. I went to college for archaeology and then decided that I needed poetry as well because that seemed like a good backup plan. And then third was dance. I mean, I've been delusional my whole <laughs> life, obviously. My parents raised this crazy little like thespian dancer child and just gushed over everything I did and made me think that it right. was okay to be that way. Built your little head up, huh? I know. I mean, I'm grateful to them, but also it's terribly <laughs> delusional. Way, though, yeah. yeah, it's really delusional. <laughs> so I think for me, the shift to poetry had a little bit more to do with my high school English teachers, mm. uh, my college English teachers, because I did add that on as a major in addition to my anthropology degree. And dance is lyrical body movement mm. and poetry is lyrical language. It just felt like a marriage to me. And I liked seeing them evolve symbiotically throughout high school and college. I think that was really important for me as an artist. You mentioned earlier that you've been uh, in Arizona for a while now. Mm -hmm. You were a teenager. You got here when you were a teenager? Yeah, right? 14. Right, what right when I started high school. You were, you I went to Mesa. Red Mountain High School, okay. East Mesa. I okay. think there might be one further east now, but it was definitely... Probably. It was at the Eastern Outpost then. It's on Brown and Power. Yeah, right? Yeah. Very unfamiliar. You right. know what I mean? Like Salt River. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. The, yeah. Back the when nothing Salt was River. out there, not mm -hmm. nearly as much, you know? No, I mean, you could tube. That was about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right, we didn't right, know about yeah. all the bacteria and right. the water well, and yeah. the parasites and stuff, you know? <laughs> so we just did it and then didn't wash our hair for days and thought that was fine. Uh, Live to was, tell about it. It was interesting because, you know, I was coming from upstate Missouri. Okay. And so to be out in this sort of remote desert environment just seemed kind of country. Just kind of country but different, you know? A little bit more treacherous. I'm not well, going to lie. Like you could die super more quickly yeah. in the yeah. desert than you can in the country in northern Missouri. But I'm curious in how much of, of your writing, uh, how much of this the, the, the surrounding environment here goes into your writing? God, I love Arizona so much. I love the desert. I just produced a public art piece with my poetry workshop. We launched the public art project last night at a big reading that we had over a curated modern design on 7th Ave in Melrose. And oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, my mm -hmm. poem was actually about, you know, a saguaro, how it how it catches stories on its needles mm. and, and sort of embeds ideas in its roots. And the last line of it was, we come here to write you. Cool. So yeah, I mean, I love the desert. It's It's a huge part of me and it's a huge part of my identity. And I don't think I've ever felt as connected to any other landscape. Wow. I wouldn't call myself a desert poet or an eco poet necessarily. I don't know if you know this about me, but I might as well say it now. Uh, I feel like it's the elephant in the room. I write more about autism than I do anything else. Uh, my son is profoundly autistic. He's 17 and he's never spoken. And my first collection, which was the one that I submitted for the Poet Laureateship, is what I call a lyrical ethnography of the culture of autism. And I'm actually putting out a second edition of that book soon. Wow. And I'm writing 17 letters to my son at the age that he is at now. And he has very limited comprehension. But it's also very cathartic and therapeutic for me to write these letters. So I do probably primarily work in that mode. That's what people, I, I would guess, would know me That's for. That's some serious inspiration, it sounds like, right? I hope so. I well, hope it inspires some I have some to tell people. you, it's like, so interesting that you're even talking about this because we just recorded with, um, I interviewed Stacey Gordon, who um, <gasps> I is know Stacey. the character... Uh, um, the Autism Muppet. Yes. On Sesame Street. Sesame Street. Julia, yes. Yes. Well, we have a mutual right. friend. Uh, right. Kate Benjamin, the cat lady, is longtime friends with Stacy. And Kate and I have been friends for a couple of years. And she introduced me to Stacy at her 
like her after wedding party or something. And I hung out with Stacy at the Coronado that night. Okay. And we talked about our kiddos. And, you know, of course, her son is verbal and very high functioning and mine is nonverbal and very low functioning. But, you know, we immediately bonded because I think everybody sort of understands that it's a broad spectrum community, a broad spectrum culture. But there are lots of cultural earmarkers that are familiar to all of us who are members of that culture. The other interesting thing for the parents is that we aren't born into the culture, Mm. but we are enculturated. Mm -hmm. And it has to become our culture because it is the culture of our children. So it's an interesting affiliation, you know, sort of where we sit in that culture. Right. It's becoming more, people are learning more about it. And people become more aware. And and I just think that's... Like, I I wouldn't have thought, I never would have thought that you, you know, had an autistic child, you know, but it's, I mean... It's so out there, you know? I know. It's closer than you think. You I know? know. I feel like every, you know, fourth person that you meet, which, right? which shouldn't be surprising because I think at one point the statistics were one in every four boys is somewhere on the spectrum mm-hmm. or is diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. So, yeah, I think the work that Stacy's doing, God, I love her, is so, so important because even though I know there was some backlash initially, like, why is the Muppet right. female and why is she verbal and That blah, was done blah, by blah. purpose, by design, right, Exactly. Too. I mean, we're introducing three and four and five-year-olds to a disability category, if you will, right. that they have no familiarity with right now. And I think that, you know, small doses are the way to go. Mm. And Sesame Street is doing the right thing. They absolutely are. You can't introduce children to every variation of autism on the spectrum. You can't even introduce adults to every variation on the spectrum. It's impossible. Yeah, it's it's a process of figuring it out. Like, there's a lot yet to be learned is all I'm saying. Yes. And so more people need to be more vocal about it, I think. And And we're on the right path. I think it's, it's, it's progressing well, you know. Um, wow, that was crazy. That's That was a crazy intersection. So Phoenix, going back to Phoenix. So you've obviously been here a, a while to see the transformation that you've that's been happening over the last ten or twenty years. What are some of the big t- differences from now and then? And you can talk whether it has to do with poetry, hmm. whether it's just in general. Compare Phoenix now to the way it was ten, fifteen years ago, maybe. You know, man, this is going to be circuitous because Roosevelt is just oh yeah in a state of upheaval. That always comes up when I ask this question, you know? I mean, it's brutal for artists because we were down there 15 years ago, first Friday, dirt lots, just a bunch of like ramshackle structures and people with crazy ideas coming together. We were reading poetry on park benches. We were selling our then journal called Merge for two bucks an issue. We had local artists doing all this really cool like pen and ink artwork for the covers. People didn't even give a shit what was inside the pages they would just buy those journals because the artwork was so cool. And then we would feel so vindicated. I was a grad student and I was out there with my undergrads at the time. And we would feel so vindicated in thinking that, yeah, we tricked people into buying poetry, <laughs> which is what I'm still into because now I do a right. micro poetry micro zine, which also looks amazing and tricks people into buying poetry. It's just not a bigger poetry. level on some level, I guess. Yeah, right? it's yeah. a whole press now. Right, right. But it's a smaller level too because the zines are like the size of your wallet. <laughs> anyway, um, when we were out there 15 years ago, it was this budding culture of artistic energy. It had so much potential and so much promise. And everybody was there in the spirit of solidarity. And I loved that. And then we not only watched the evolution, I think we were part of it. I don't think that we can deny. I mean, I started Phoenix Poetry Series 10 years ago. We were part of it. I mean, we were yeah. hosting reading series in downtown Phoenix when downtown Phoenix was still nothing. And, and of course, all these First Friday events that date back, you know, even longer. I met some older poets in the community during those years. 
who were really surprised that there were younger poets out there trying to resurrect yeah. the scene. And so we partnered up with them. So a lot of poets my age were meeting cats in their 60s and 70s oh, who had cool. done it back in the 70s. And so we collaborated with them. And I think that was how we were able to grow the scene so successfully, especially the literary arts scene, because we had you know, the veterans who had contacts going back years. And then we had the younger emerging poets coming into the scene who had contacts that were more like university age and youth age. And so we were able to bring together the best of both worlds. And it was such an exciting time for us, not because on a daily basis we were thinking, look how we're growing this community. But, you know, after we reached that 10-year mark, and I think it was President Obama named Roosevelt one of the top art districts in the nation, that was kind of when we sat back and said, oh, yeah, this is kind of our doing. And we felt, again, that sense of solidarity and collaboration and pride in everything that we had worked so hard for. I feel like to this day when I meet people in their 30s and 40s who talk about the old days of First Friday, I mean, we're bumping fists within the first three minutes of our conversation because we'll say, remember this, remember this, remember that guy who used to do this? Remember that guy who used to do that? And there's that immediate sense of solidarity again. So what's happening now? Uh, I, I It can only be thwarted by the artists. And I get that the artists have no power to thwart the developers. I mean, they've essentially already destroyed Roosevelt. Lawn Gnome is closing this week. It's done. It's done. Uh, the death knell sounded a long time ago. And it's disgusting to us. But we have obviously migrated to places like Grand Avenue and 7th Avenue, and we're going to make the most of it. And a lot of people are going to fight to keep those communities what they are right now. We're going to let them win and have Roosevelt, obviously. Well, and we're going to fight for the we're going to fight for the abs is what is, we're going to do now. <laughs> this is not a terribly unknown transformation evolution because you've seen it in New York City where the artists come in to yeah. a cheap neighborhood, right. they build it up, you know, people make it cool, you know, yeah. and then development comes in and makes it too expensive, and the artists go someplace else, mm -hmm. which is really what's happening here, you yeah. know? Um, and so it, it is kind of disappointing, but at the same time, it's kind of cool to see that, okay, this will happen again. Right. And maybe we can maybe we can do it differently, or maybe we can do something that will kind of put a gap on on development on some level, you know? Right. I mean, because we are the phoenix after all. So right. I like exactly. what you're saying. It's I mean, we are, we are going to resurrect ourselves right. somewhere else. We're going to rebirth ourselves somewhere else. And when that somewhere else ends up, you know, falling victim burning up, you know, in the flames and turning to ash, then we will go somewhere else and rebirth ourselves. I really love the metaphor of this city too much. Mm. Um, but it is it is a good feeling to see the art communities thriving in other places already. We may I feel like we made the transition really, really quickly. Yeah. And, like you know, the poem that I'm gonna read on Tuesday <clears throat> at the mayor's thing actually talks about how the artists are the people who hold the city together in the face of progress. I don't believe there's anybody else who really puts the time and effort into it and the love and the care into holding these communities, you know, that try to represent the larger community and try to represent it in solidarity and equality. You mean and the poets, the artists. Uh -huh. the, yeah. The I don't think, and I don't think there's anybody else who does it as well as the right. artists. And so we do hold the city together in the face of progress because we are the ones who will immediately pick up and move and not endure a break in the work that we're doing at all because we know how important it is to the community. And I think if if the kids don't see that and if the millennials don't see that, then we're not 
imparting that spirit of resilience to them. And that is so important because I got to tell you, the millennials are a stressed lot of people. They really are so stressed. When I was their age, I was not stressed like they are. Interesting. And so I think they need to see us being resilient because they're also the idea people. They're the idea people and they are the egalitarians. God, if anybody believes in inclusivity, it's the millennials. And so I think they need us to be resilient. We need to help recreate these new artistic pockets for them so that they can come in with their great ideas and do what they're going to do. And build them up so they're not stressed. Exactly. And so they can do those, those, oh my do, God. Do those things. Yeah, I mean, we've got to validate the, the art that they're producing. Exactly, because that's what's going to give them the longevity that they need to have now because they got to do this for 20 years now you know i feel that already it's weird but i am so passing the baton and it's strange because i think god i'm not dead yet and i hopefully i'm not even close (laughs) but and maybe it's just because i work with college students but i do feel like i'm passing the baton like all my college students that are like 22 23 24 have already graduated have already done their honors theses with me have been my creative writers for years they're doing amazing things in the community they're starting presses they're starting zines the founder of wasted ink zine distro is a former student of mine Jesus, you know you're old when that shit starts <laughs> happening, right? God, when your former students are like running the literary community, you're like, oh my oh. God. Well, I mean, I did something right at least. Yeah. That feels wow. good. That we'll take really all good. that and then like what, like 10, 15, 20 years from now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like what does Phoenix look like then? Or what would you like it to look like? Or what does the literary scene, the art mm. scene look like then? Wow. I certainly don't want to imagine Grand Avenue being raised by mm. developers. I don't I don't want to see that happen. And I and I feel badly about thinking along the lines of gentrification. It's probably inevitable. There's gonna be some gentrification on Grand. I don't think that, that that flop house motel is gonna make it much longer. <laughs> I think it's good that it's there because it's an eyesore. Oh, okay. And it keeps the developers away. Gotcha. It keeps grand trashy. I mean, let's get real. <laughs> and I think that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, that this that really like unstable people wander into art galleries on grand keeps people away. I like that. I guess instead of seeing that building raised, I'd like to see somebody like Beatrice or Laura Dragon. I'd like to see somebody buy it now or a collective buy it now and turn that into a community space. A community art space where you know, classes could be offered, where supplies could be provided. I'd like to see somebody land a huge grant before all that NEH money goes away. Mm. That's what I'd like to see happen. So that would be my ultimate dream for grant. Instead of letting developers come in from some other state or some other country, I'd like to see us pool together and maybe buy up some of that property that's going to be the easiest to buy up. Right. Wow. Because, you know, the Roach Motels and stuff are going to be the cheapest. They're going to be the cheapest real estate. And yeah, I mean, I think that's that's what can be done in any good ghost town in Arizona. Grand Avenue kind of has that old ghost town oh, feel to it, you know? Yeah. And I think that's how the artists have saved all the old ghost towns across the state. Look at Jerome. Look right. at Bisbee. Right. Bunch of crazy artists right, went totally. in and bought up the property <laughs> and now they're doing their crazy artist thing. And I love those places, but, you know, they don't feel like home to me. I like visiting, but ugh. I mean, Phoenix True. is home. Phoenix yeah. is definitely home. I'm not going to run off. You're not going anywhere. I'm that's not going anywhere. Hear. No. Not even if somebody else offers me a better gig. Because, like, what could be better than the Poet Laureate, right? right? I mean, for a poet, there's not anything better. Even if some university said, we'll give you this other position, I'll think. But is there a Poet Laureateship involved in that other position? No, because it would just be a university gig. And universities are great. I mean, they're what put food on the table for a lot of creative writers and for a lot of artists and for a lot of people in the humanities. We would have nowhere to go if there weren't still universities. Like, there would be no paycheck. 
and we would be living in that motel on Grand. Um, <laughs> and I'm glad that I don't have to. So obviously, I'm grateful for my university job. But you know, it's not like it it just sort of materialized out of nothing. Sure. I got a PhD when I was in my 20s. So, you know, I just right. spent my whole life in grad school raising my nonverbal son because right. I figured, what else am I going to do now? You know, like I'm sort of stuck. Nothing dis- nothing comes out of nothing. I mean, it does, but it's not like you be- you, you uh, um, became the laureate, poet laureate just overnight, obviously, right. you know. Like- and so you also have your own press. It's called Rinky Dink. Tell us a little about that. We don't have a creative writing major on the downtown campus, so I wanted to create something for students after the intermediate class, something that felt like an advanced workshop or something that felt like a capstone project, because these students were never going to go to Tempe to take any more creative writing classes. But they had such passion, such passion for creative writing and poetry in particular. So I came up with the Microzine project at the end of the semester for the poets to do. Like Everybody's going to create a sequence of six micro poems that are somehow interrelated. They could be six parts of a narrative. They could be six micro poems that are thematically related, that are imagistically related, that are all about the self, different body parts speaking, whatever. Make it as wackadoo as you want. Uh, but you got to come up with your own cover art and you got to design the whole thing yourself. And then I'll teach you how to origami fold it out of one sheet of paper and you'll have this amazing micro zine. So we did that as a project. And we did it in two different classes, a special topics class and my poetry workshop. Everybody loved it so much. And then the group of students who were not poets, they were just in a special topics class with me, said, you know, RD, um, you've taught us so much about poetry this semester, how valuable it's been politically, socially over the last couple hundred years. And we love it, but we don't think anybody reads it. Get real. Like nobody's going out there and buying like collections of poems by a single author, unless it's your teacher and you know them. And you, you go to, to their it. book launch, <laughs> right. exactly, and you feel obligated. And so I came up with the idea then of putting out a call to writers around the country to submit manuscripts of six micro poems. So it's almost like a sampling slash appetizer of the work of poets, some of whom are pretty established, but many of whom are not going to be able to sell their collections to people they don't know, because there's so many poets working on that tier right now. So what we do is every reading period, which lasts for about four months, we put out a call nationwide. Uh, So we run ads in new pages and poets and writers and places like that. We put out a call to writers for these interrelated sequences of micro poems, and we call it a micro chat book. So this is not your standard 24 page, you know, chat book where the poems are like 30 some lines each. We're talking a maximum of 40 words per poem. Show us your aesthetic in that space instead, and we'll see if we can't get you published and get you distributed more widely throughout the country. So what we do every reading period is we select the top 10, and then we divvy up those 10 manuscripts between our editorial board. And this is an annual thing, is it? No, we do it twice a year. Twice a year. Twice a year. So we are in our second year right now and about to put out series three. So we divvy up the 10 manuscripts. We've got most of our editors working with two manuscripts each. And those editors then are responsible for contacting those two poets that they're working with, bouncing around cover art ideas. And ultimately, the editors are responsible for designing those collections, those micro chat book collections. And then when we have our launch, when we have our release, we release all 10 of those micro chat books at once. And usually at the release, people want to buy all 10 because they're a buck a piece. So then we put them in a little record sleeve and slap a sticker on them and 
people take all 10 home with them. And, and we have a recycling mission too. We, we, we have a sustainability mission. We print on treeless paper and we also encourage people that if they don't want to keep the collection, that they leave it in a coffee shop mm. or some other place where, you know, there's a common table for reading materials because we're just trying to get poetry in what we call the pockets of the people because they're pocket-sized right. microzines. And I think this is a really palatable way to introduce a lot of people to mm. poetry. Oh, yeah. Because the covers look super cool. People are intrigued. They pick them up. We go to zine fests. People love what we're doing. We go to book fests. People love what we're doing. We're not really a book. We're not really <laughs> a zine. You know, we're somewhere in between because right. we're literary and we're poetic and we're really polished and we're publishing really high level hmm. poets. But... You know, we kind of feel like we fit better in the zine world, honestly, right. because we don't necessarily want to always be in that highfalutin academic book world. I like going there just to say, you know, F you to them sometimes, which is what I like. Like, look at us. We can do this on a shoestring budget and we're actually getting the work of more poets out more effectively. Mm. So I like going to the highfalutin conferences for that reason. But I feel more at home in the zine world, if Ooh. that makes sense. But it's totally accessible, it sounds like. You know, totally. And it fits that kind of like attention span you know yes absolutely so we get them there and then we get them with our diy aesthetic and uh we have a super cool staff i mean it's pretty much all millennials except for me so and this is your thing (laughs) this is separate from asu and whatnot right it is but i bring asu students into it yes right now i don't have any students on staff everybody who's on staff has graduated because i'm not losing staff do you see what i'm saying Mm -hmm. i started it with students but none of them have quit and so they're all out of school now and they're still on staff three semesters later cool anything else no that was probably it (laughs) well then uh i will say thank you for being on the show thank you so much for having me this was rad This poem is an homage to Howell, and it was reset or recast in Phoenix shortly after the election. So anybody who's a fan of Ginsburg will recognize some of the language and certainly the rolling inflamed lines. It's called Recultivating a Habit, and it opens with an epigraph by Fred Kaplan. Howell was his manifesto jeremiad of personal exuberance and socio-political doom. In the grit of a Phoenix November, we shut down the news feed and started eating more vegetables, set metaphorical fire to the editors who were vomiting the syntax of apathetic prose. We read zines filled with radical poetics, saw teenagers in the streets marching under the vestiges of Chavez and Whitman, their limbs illuminated by the unholy light of government street lamps. We dreamed of selling our cars and retiring to Mexico, dropping tinctures of marijuana while dismantling automatic rifles in the deadly desert night, killing off the characters in the elitist mythology of Capitol Hill and pipelines. Like anyone nostalgic, we turned on the radio, belted out the lyrics to a song about idiots while barreling down the highway toward Bisbee, talking continuously of the border until the copper illuminated our hair, but only for a second. We danced on smashed records until the cicadas went silent and time was motionless, lingered under the yucca trees, leaving no hearts broken. Only the ash of obscenities and lies scattered in a fire pit where someone had cooked tortillas the night before.
Speaking with Rosemary actually got me feeling a bit nostalgic. Our discussion reminded me of a time long, long ago when I lived in Hollywood, when I wrote poetry, and I wrote it poorly. But let this not devalue the process and need for getting something, anything from the pen to the paper. The four years I lived in Los Angeles were four of the loneliest and most isolated years of my life, which is so strange considering I was surrounded by millions and millions of people, and really like-minded people as well. But the years were also very formative and educational. They were life educational, and despite the missteps and depression that I went through, I came out of it a better person. That would not have been possible without the catharsis of writing. It usually came in the form of poetry. Sometimes life is hard. Maybe you're dealing with something difficult, and you don't have the tools to quite figure it out. Well, poetry was the means by which I traversed those storms. Poetry transformed the tools of stone and bone that I'd been using into modern technology. It's basically my therapy, and it pulled me through some of the biggest, most difficult periods of my life. And that's why it was so exciting for me to have Rosemary on the podcast. Because words are not only powerful in their ability to change people's minds, they're also powerful in their ability to save one's life. If you'd like to reach us, we can be found at onthegridphx.com or email us at onthegridphx at gmail.com. On the Grid is produced by Chris Ayers. Intro music was performed by local band Factories. They can be reached at factoriesmusic.com. And by the way, sticking with our theme of local, we feature local musical artists on each episode of our podcast. And on this episode, we're featuring one of Rosemary's uh, favorite local bands, Haymarket Squares. And of course, we want to thank Rosemary for being on the show. Her next big event will be June 2nd in Las Vegas for the last pop-up poetry feature series of the 2017 season. And thank you so very much for listening to our 15th episode of On the Grid. Well, let me tell you about my city. It's dusty, hot, and dry. Nobody calls it pretty. There's a little too much crime. And there's a million other places that I'd rather be. Oceans are calling, but this desert's home to me And I love, and I love this pretty city This pretty city Phoenix is a poster child for everything that's wrong The planks of city life are been decay and sprawl But there's a million little places with local bands and beer To have a drink and wonder what the hell you're doing the valley.